0: Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, In my Father's house are in many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I would go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hey, I wanna start by setting the context in this passage this morning by asking you an important question. Okay, it'll help us begin to set the context here. Have you ever had a Three Stooges moment? You know what I'm talking about? You know, the Three Stooges, if you ever watched them, One action would Lead to another action, to another action, and each action would increase the pain, the frustration, the uh, chaos, until finally it would build to such a point of climax that Mo would inevitably poke, you know, Curly in the eyes, and probably slap Larry, and you know they would go off. And 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 if you're watching the Three Stooges, you know that as those events snowball one on top of the other on top of the other. We laugh harder, right? The humor, that's how they would build the humor. Have you ever had a a Three Stooges moment? What I mean by that? I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, About two weeks ago, it was my day off. I was doing some chores, some work around the house and I had just gotten started, and I, I, I hit my shin on like the, the trailer, my boat trailer, and I, I tried to remove all the skin off of my shin, you know? So now I've got this blood running down my, my leg and everything, and so I'm holding on to a tire that I was trying to fix, and so what do I do with the tire? I drop it. Where? Yeah, on my foot. So I do this, I grab it, and I lean over. And when I lean over and grab it, I hit my head on the trailer, and I literally fall down. You remember you know, the cartoons where you see stars? You know, I'm sitting there, and there's stars. I'm looking for Tweety Birds. And all. I mean, I finally, I just look up at the sky, and I say, okay, Lord, what are you trying to say? You know? You you've probably had that, right? You, where you just know, you, those moments where you say, this is not going to be a good day right? You, you just start out your morning like that, and you know, I, or you say, I should not have gotten out of bed this morning. It's just those are, those are three Stooges moments, and sometimes when we feel these little things that pile up on top of each other, and that it builds the chaos, the frustration, the irritation in our lives, we certainly understand that that can happen and interrupt our lives, but then there are those times where something more serious happens, and it'll be something here, and then another, and then another, right on its heels, or shortly thereafter, and it just turns your entire life upside down. My mother-in-law has a superstitious uh, idea about this. She says that it always happens in threes, right? And one happens, and then something else, and, then some, and it, it just completely turns your life upside down. She may be on to something, because in this passage, the, uh, the disciples, they, their, their life has been turned upside down because of three things that Jesus has told them in chapter 13. He has told them that one of their midst is a traitor, a Judas, literally, that's where we get the word, you're a Judas, Judas Iscariot. One of them is gonna betray Jesus, that was the first thing. Then he said, I will be leaving you This is over. What we've been doing right now together, is about to change. And this absolutely throws them for a loop. And then as if that weren't enough, he tells them that the leader of their group, besides himself among the disciples, Peter was their leader, and that Peter himself was going to deny Jesus. You kind of understand why he would then turn in verse one and say, don't let your heart be troubled because he had just told them three things, one on top of another, that was absolutely gonna turn their life upside down. And what's interesting is that in the midst of all this anxiety, all this turmoil, as they're talking out and they're responding to what they're hearing, Jesus brings comfort to the disciples by pointing them to heaven. And this is significant for us, heaven. Thoughts of heaven, being heavenly-minded as we talked about last week, it should comfort and alleviate anxiety. It should motivate and increase our joy. It should calm us and ground us and give us assurance as we live within this realm. Thoughts of heaven, Yet passages like this one that Jesus gives to, to comfort us, they often end up creating more questions in our minds. For example, where is heaven? What is the nature of heaven? Is it, is it physical? Is it spiritual? Is it both? What's heaven like right now? our loved ones who have already passed on and are enjoying the glories of heaven, what is life like for them right now? And most importantly, how does one get there? How can one be certain that they too will enjoy the glories of heaven? Well, this morning, I want us to walk through this great passage, this promise that Jesus gives us so that we can obtain a better understanding of heaven and our future glory. Let's start with this basic truth that we see in this passage, that heaven is a real place. Heaven is a real place. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Heaven is first and foremost the dwelling of God. Wherever God is, that is where heaven is. The scriptures tell us in Psalms, uh, the Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. The prophet Isaiah, as he is interacting with God and he's experiencing difficulties, wanting God's intervention, says in Isaiah 63, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Look from where your home is, Lord, and look and see what's going on here. Where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts? and your compassion are held back from me. Heaven is a real place. It's not just a symbol. It's not just some type of spiritual concept. It is a real place that exists in time and in space. The Lord teaches us this. The scriptures teach us this. And it helps us to understand that heaven is real in several different ways, It it gives us insight into the nature and the reality of heaven. I want to give you five of them this morning, and we're going to move to them rather rapidly. I could give you more, but these are five of the biggest ones that help us understand what is the nature of heaven. What is heaven like? What is heaven like right now? First of all, the scriptures teach us it's where believers go when we die. Jesus, when he was on the cross, bracketed by two criminals, as they interact with one another, one is blasphemous towards the Lord, but one expresses repentance and faith. And in response to that man, Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in an ethereal spiritual concept that actually isn't real. Not at all. He says what? Today you will be with me in paradise. The, the apostle Paul, when he's talking to the Philippians, he knows that his time is short. He says, I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better than me, for me, but I know that you in turn need me to be here with you. It is where believers go when we die. Second aspect about heaven, it is either a spiritually unseen realm in our dimension, or it occupies a different dimension. It's either an unseen realm within our universe that we just cannot see, or it exists in another dimension. You know, uh, it, The scriptures give us some, some neat insight into this. A few weeks back, I told you the story of Elisha, the great prophet of Israel. And there was this incident where he was uh, accused by the king of Syria of having a spy. He must have a spy in the camp because the information, the intelligence that he was giving to the king of Israel was allowing the Israelites to thwart the plans of the Syrian king in battle. But in reality, what was happening was God was telling Elisha what he needed to know to give good ac- countenance and, and guidance and counsel to the, to the Israelite king. So the Syrians sent an army to the city of Dothan where uh, uh, Elisha was living. And when his, his servant boy comes out in the morning time to get water and to do different things, he looks up and he sees that the city is surrounded by this army and they are about to attack. And he, he has a Three Stooges moment, right? <laughs> and he runs back in and he gets Elisha and Elisha brings him back out. And Elisha is nice and calm and he's not anxious at all. And he turns to this young man, and he says to the Lord, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around You see, heaven is either a spiritually unseen realm. In other words, it's with us right now, but for whatever reason, we are not allowed to see it. It's in our universe, or it is in a a different dimension that at different times, God has allowed his saints to see. I love what Elisha basically tells him, greater is our army than their army (laughs) because of all the angelic beings that were there. You see this principle also in the New Testament. The very first martyr of the New Testament church is a deacon by the name of Stephen. And as he's being stoned to death, God gives Stephen this great blessing of removing the veil between our realm, our earthly realm, and heaven. And this is what Stephen says as he is being being stoned. In Acts chapter seven, he was full of the Holy Spirit He gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, we often ask, where is heaven at? And I made a joke last week, you know, go past Pluto and hang a left and don't stop till you hit it. We don't know exactly where heaven is but clearly it is existing in some kind of a dimension that we are not right now allowed to see, but in the future we will see. A third truth that the Scriptures give us about heaven is that it is the perfect real source of which earth is the imperfect but real shadow. Some of the best teachings on the, on the subject of heaven occurs in the book of Hebrews. And there you find in both Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9, this basic teaching so for example, in Hebrews 8, he talks about Jesus who, is, who has been this perfect uh, order of Melchizedek high priest in chapter 7, and he says he ministers in a temple that was not made with human hands. Those who minister in the temple today are ministering in a temple that was made like the one in heaven, he says in chapter 8. In chapter 9, the passage I put on the screen for you says that Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. Both chapter 8 and chapter 9 tell us a, a profound truth that the temple here on earth, as the author says, was a shadow. It was a copy of that which is in heaven itself where Christ entered to achieve our redemption. So the heavenly is what is real. The earth is a shadow of that. Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven, a great book by the way, if you're interested in reading on this subject and exploring different topics, I would commend this book to you. Randy Alcorn is his name. He writes this about this passage and about this concept. He says those verses in Hebrews suggest that God created earth in the image of heaven just as he created mankind in his image. Often our thinking is backwards. Why do we imagine that God patterns heaven's holy city after an an earthly city, as if heaven knows nothing of community and culture and has to get its ideas from us? Isn't it more likely that earthly realities, including cities, are derived from heavenly counterparts, We tend to start with earth and reason up toward heaven when instead we should start with heaven and reason down toward earth. Boy, if you start thinking about that very long, okay, this is a deep concept, but it gives us insight into the fact that heaven is real. It is not some spiritual, ethereal concept. It is an actual real place that exists in time and within space. Fourthly, there is a physical aspect to this perfect spiritual realm. There is a physical aspect to it. You know, in the past, when I have taught with uh, perhaps pastors of a persuasion that are more to the left or the liberal wing of Christianity, it is often uh, and is something that they will say oftentimes is that the resurrection of Christ, well, it wasn't actually a literal resurrection. it was just something that kind of happened in spirit. It's a spiritual concept. And normally, when they talk about the resurrection being a spiritual concept, like, well, you know, Jesus is always with us, and, you know, the teachings of Jesus and the ethos of Jesus is always with us, so in that sense, he rose from the dead. And normally, when that is said, also what is said is that, well, no, heaven isn't actually a place, it's just a concept that God has given us to give us joy and happiness, I'm sorry, a concept of a resurrected Jesus does not give me assurance, and neither does a concept of a spiritual ethereal symbol called heaven give me any warm fuzzies. It needs to be real. And the great thing is, is that the scriptures teach us that it is real, and that, it is, that there is a spiritual aspect to this perfect spiritual realm just because it is a spiritual realm doesn't mean it isn't real and that there isn't physical aspects to it. Let me give you a few examples from Scripture along these lines, OK? Um, you go back to the Old Testament. There's a story in second Samuel, or excuse me, first Samuel, chapter 28. Saul is wanting to know what he should do in the upcoming battles and, and direction of the country, and so he seeks out a witch that is known in the area called the Witch of Endor. And he goes to the Witch of Endor and he asks her to, come, to bring back Samuel so that he can talk to Samuel and get counsel from Samuel. And guess what? It actually worked. I wonder if at that moment, that witch went. "Oh my what's happening? You know How much of it had been a con and now, old my. Samuel, in his spirit form, appears to Saul and basically says, "What are you doing? This is wrong." And he begins to proceed to, to bless out Saul and tell him how sinful this was. But Samuel knew excuse me, Saul knew this was Samuel. That's interesting. So the soul of Samuel looked like Samuel in some way. Somehow, Samuel's existence in paradise still resembled the man Samuel. Another example, in the New Testament, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. And there they are on the mountain, and then joining Jesus are who? Moses and Elijah. And Peter sees Moses and Elijah with Jesus. Somehow he knows, now this is for the days of photography, right? But somehow he knows that's Moses and Elijah. Hey guys, you know what we should do? We should build three tabernacles, three temples right here on this mountain and worship these three guys. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, the only one you're to worship is my son, not Moses and Elijah. But don't miss the point that these disciples recognized Moses. They recognized Elijah. Um, We know from the scriptures that in heaven right now are angelic beings. These angelic beings have substance. They have a form of existence. God is spirit. And so he doesn't have hands and feet and eyes and physical, those types of physical attributes like we do, but the angelic beings who live in this spiritual realm, they do. This young man in 2 Kings, he actually saw angels and their, in all of their glory, there was something to them that was physical. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in where? The paradise of God. What's the paradise of God? That's another expression for what? Heaven. Wait a second, the tree of life. You remember the tree of life? Right? Back in Genesis, the tree of life, Garden of Eden, Jesus says in Revelation, the tree of life is where? It's in heaven. That, that brings up all kinds of questions. What was the Garden of Eden actually like? I mean, was the Garden of Eden a place that w- maybe that veil between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm was not there before sin? We, we don't know. That's conjecture. But here's this garden with the tree of life in it, and after sin, mankind can no longer get to the Garden of Eden, but Jesus says this, this tree is in heaven. And you go to the end of the book of Revelation, and the new heavens and new earth, and guess what you also see? The, the tree of life. Something that's very, very physical there in this spiritual realm of heaven. But hey, here's the, the biggest amount of proof, in the fifth thing I want you to understand about how we know that heaven is real, it's not just some spiritual concept, that there's actually a physical aspect to heaven right now is the very fact that right now, Jesus, this is the ultimate proof, Jesus now resides in heaven in his human body, in his human body. In Acts chapter one, verse 11, the angels. Say to the disciples after Jesus ascends, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. How did he go into heaven? He went physically, from his physical body after the resurrection, and we know it was a physical body. It was different than ours, right? But we know it was a real body because he ate food with the disciples. By the way, that's a good scene. That's a good scene for telling us what. Hey, heaven means that we're not going to have to give up our steak, right? Right. (laughs) But, But but there's a physical body. There's eating. Now it was a different body, right? He could could walk through walls. He could do amazing things with this body. His glorified, resurrected body was different, but it was still physical, and this physical body ascended into heaven, and it says where he now sits at the right hand of God in his place of cosmic authority over the entire universe, labeled King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is at least one perfect human being right now, physically and spiritually in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ and so the question is what else is there that is physical and tangible but what we can see from these illustrations and from these passages of scripture is that heaven is a real place not just some kind of spiritual concept it is God's dwelling place and it exists in space and in time we just can't say definitively where it is secondly heaven is home for those who trust in Christ alone. You know, there's many metaphors, there's many similes in the Bible that are used to describe heaven. Jesus refers to it both as Abraham's bosom and as paradise. The apostle Peter, he refers to it as God's eternal kingdom and our eternal inheritance. The author of Hebrews, who we don't know exactly who that was, but he refers to heaven as a city, as the better city, a better country. It is according to the scriptures, it is bliss, it is life everlasting, it is eternal life, it is the fullness of joy. All of these expressions give us insight as to what heaven is like right now into the nature and wonder of heaven. But the expression, the, the, the metaphor that, God, that Jesus uses to help us understand heaven, Jesus uses different terminology. He uses the language of home. A home that has rooms for all of us. He's saying that heaven, which is God's dwelling place, is also our eternal home. Home. In my Father's house, the language of home, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Can I tell you what Jesus is not saying in this passage? Uh, Many of us, we might have first read this passage in the King James Version. I memorized this when I was a kid. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many yeah, many of you know it, mansions. In fact, the, the language of mansions entered into our hymnody and other songs. Can I tell you that because of that arose a teaching in God's church that is false. The idea that somehow our heavenly home, our mansions, you know, are going to be determined by how good we are here on earth. The more I serve the Lord, the more I obey God, the nicer, the more splendid mansion I'm going to have. And if I'm a rascal and I don't live for God like I should, I'll be lucky to get a shack down by the river. This was used to motivate us. Apparently, you know, Steve Spurrier and all Gator fans will be lucky to get a shack if they get into heaven at all, according to Seminoles that I've talked to, right? This idea that we can earn, we can pay it forward, the, the, the quality of our mansion. So, you know, some of us are going to look at others and say, well, should have listened to the preacher. No, not at all. Listen, when he says, in my father's house are many rooms, as the ESV says, that's a better translation. The word for rooms is the Greek word monet. It literally means dwelling places dwelling places. So, in the Father's house, there is plenty of space for us all to dwell. In heaven, there is plenty of room for all of us to live. If you really want to see the point that Jesus is making, understand that the word room, Monet, is only used twice in the entire New Testament. One here in verse 2, the other time in verse 23 of the same chapter. And this is how it's translated. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our what? Home with him. The idea here that Jesus is saying is how should we think of heaven? What is heaven going to be like? It's like home Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8 Yes we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at say it with me home with the Lord Now what does the word home mean For some of you <coughs> excuse me the word home may not conjure up warm fuzzy feelings In fact, there may be negative emotions and negative experiences. For others of us, home brings about great joy and great ideas. But home, in its most honorable usage of the word, an ideal home, what does it mean? Even if you didn't personally experience it, what should it have been? Well, it conjures up the ideas of security, doesn't it? Home is a place that is secure and safe for us home is a place of comfort. Home is a place of laughter and joy and happiness. Home is a place of contentment. It is a place of community, of of knowing and being known. Our kids, parents, it's interesting, right? They, They always think that mom and dad, we don't know them and, and, and of course, nothing could be further from the truth, right? Nobody knows them better than mom and dad. Why? Because when you live in home together, you very quickly become known and you know the other. It's a place of satisfaction, a place of peace, a place of rest, home. It's tranquility, So Jesus is saying to us that death, for the Christian, it isn't something to be feared. It is the best kind of family reunion imaginable. It's the family reunion without the crazy uncle or aunt that ends up ruining it for everybody, right? It's perfect home with all that is communicated in that word home. It's also a home our eternal home, but it's only God's family that lives in God's home. In verse 4, he says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Listen, it isn't an easy thing to say this morning. <coughs> Excuse me. It's not a popular thing to say. But Jesus says, listen, home, heaven is your heavenly home. It is where God is. But everyone will not experience the wonder of heaven. Those who reject Christ do not spend eternity with God in heaven. Now this is not a popular message today. In our day of inclusion where everybody is included into everything, the more popular message is to say, well listen, ultimately all religions will lead to God. I I spoke to a Christian just recently who told me, he said, well listen, this whole idea of, of only Jesus, that's just offensive to me. How can we say that everyone who believes in other religions, I mean they believe in God, they're trusting in God, why wouldn't God allow everybody who just simply believes in Him And something that has to do with a cosmic creator into heaven, that he created many ways to get there. I said, you know, I would love to believe that. I really would love to believe that. That would be so much easier on all of us if we could just say everybody who has any inkling of spirituality at all, they get to reside in heaven. And in fact, even those who reject spirituality at all, ultimately God is going to win them all over. It would be nice to say that. But as I told that Christian, I said, unfortunately, there's a downside to that view. The downside is that if if that is what God has done, then we are worshiping an unimaginably cruel deity. We We are worshiping a sadistic God, not a loving, benevolent God. And he looked at me like, what are you talking about? I said, I can't even begin to imagine that I would voluntarily sacrifice one of my sons to a cruel and horrendous death, supposedly for the redemption of souls and the forgiveness of sins, when all that is actually needed is for somebody to go down to the beach and commune through a sunrise with the Creator. Why would I give up my son and kill him and put him through that kind of agony? If there were 9,999 other ways to get to me, what does that say about our creator if that's the truth of the story? Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. Jesus says, I am the way. And in the Greek language, it is, I am the one and only way. And why would Jesus say this? Because he goes on to say, I am the truth, all truth. And I am the life, all life. So in other words, anything that disagrees with me is not truth. It is false. In our pluralistic world, standing for absolute truth is absolutely the last thing we're supposed to do. But Jesus says no. I am the only truth. And if there's to be any experience of eternal life in God's heaven, it comes through me. Do you know this Jesus this morning? Have you experienced him yourself? If not, I would encourage you to trust in him. Heaven is a real place, heaven is home for those who trust in Christ alone. One final thought, I just want to introduce it this morning. We're going to spend much more time on it in weeks ahead and future messages, but I just want to put it out there for you to consider as we close. Our initial heavenly home is not our permanent heavenly home. In verse 3, Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This passage of scripture is often debated among biblical scholars. They ask, is Jesus talking to the disciples about heaven where people go right now? Or is he talking about that ultimate eternal heaven that the book of Revelation and other places allude to? Which one is he talking about? Is he talking about one or the other or is he talking about both? I kind of think that primarily what Jesus is getting at here, based upon this verse, is he's talking the ultimate comfort we have is that new heaven and new earth are permanent home. But what we learn from this passage is what is true in the permanent home is also going to be true in our temporary home, what we might call the intermediate state, heaven where our friends and loved ones currently are. Church, if we understand... That this earth, and we're going to go more into this in a couple of weeks. We're going to get into the book of Revelation and really unpack this concept for us. And this really gets into what will we be doing for all of eternity and, and those types of things. But if we, if we really understand that this earth is a shadow of what is currently real in heaven and what will be fully realized when Jesus finishes making all things new, our work for the Lord right now takes on a very tangible, real, eternal value. It's important for us to bring gospel restoration into our world. It's important for us to bring this because when we do so, in some way, we bring just a little bit of the glory of heaven into this earthly realm right now the lord's supper that we're going to be taking this morning it points us to a meal that will be taken and that future permanent heavenly home when we observe the lord's supper in a very tangible way we are taking a little bit of that future heavenly glory and we're bringing it into this earthly realm and the same is true When we bring the love of Christ into someone's life, whether they're a believer or not, what we are doing through our deeds and when we serve them and love them is we're bringing a little bit of that heavenly glory into this earthly realm, into that person. And this is why Jesus, at the beginning of this entire passage in chapter 13, he makes that grand statement. It's by how we love one another that all men know that you are my disciples because when we love like this, and we bring gospel restoration into people's lives, we're giving them just a little glimpse. That veil is removed, just a tiny bit, as to the glories of heaven. Let's pray before we take the Lord's Supper. As I pray, let me invite the men and the musicians to take their place. Heavenly Father, we come to this meal together this morning, thanking you that you have given us your Son, Jesus, so that we can have the forgiveness of our sins, so that we can be made one through his body and blood. And as we observe this meal together this morning, Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for taking on the wrath of God upon yourself that our sins that we ourselves deserve to bear We thank you for taking all of our sins and putting them under the blood and separating them as far as the east is from the west so that they are no longer remembered by our heavenly Father. In your name we pray these things. Amen.